this is David Wilson, and welcome to episode 40 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been, and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is speaking with people we can't meet with face-to-face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. So yeah, so format's fairly straightforward and let's just have a bit of fun with it. Let's just see where it goes and, uh, you know, you might have some questions to ask me, you never know. (laughs) You know, my way or the highway, I'm changing everything and there's no institutional memory. We're going to, we have to do everything the Silicon Valley way and it's like, no, we don't have to do everything the Silicon Valley way. That's the voice of Helder Sebastian, my guest this week here on Another Track. He's an innovation consultant and startup advisor. I first met Helder through a colleague of mine, actually, and somebody I've interviewed on Another Track in episode 19, Stephen Mayer. What I liked about Helder's approach is that he tries to make sure that your company provides the right resources, habitat, and culture for innovation. Also, he firmly believes that in a culture such as a company, It takes humility to understand what was planned and what just kind of happened because the stars were aligned. Often Halder is running an international rescue to change the culture. And if you can't change the culture, you got to change the people. I first started asking Halder about his culture and what was the origins of his name? Yeah, I'm a first-generation Portuguese-American. My parents came from Portugal and I'm actually named after... uh, someone from my mother's village. Unfortunately, her father died when she was relatively young. And so this name is actually an honorarium to that gentleman who acted like a father figure. As unique as it is, I could never change it given given the uh, the way it was given to me. In Portuguese, it's Eldre Sebastião is how you pronounce the name. But in the anglicized version, if people say Elder Sebastião, I'm happy. And that's, that's what I go by. So I was going to say, you answer to any name, so long as it's within that <laughs> exactly. range. Absolutely excellent. Okay. Well, listen, thank you again for joining us today. And I'd love the listeners to get a feel for what you do, because you're an innovation consultant and a startup advisor. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. That, that sounds really kind of quite grand and, you know, what have you. But what's the realities of that type of position? What do you do in practical terms? In practical terms, the innovation consulting side is working with companies, typically established companies, companies have been around for a while, and helping them either, one, uh, train their staff on some of the tools of innovation and innovation techniques, things like the lean startup process, design thinking, blue ocean strategy, what I call entrepreneurial thinking and acting. Kind of my secret sauce is I'm, I'm agnostic to these different tools and I, I use bits and pieces of, of all of them to uh, help companies decide, hey, what, you know, what's the right process for us to use to start to develop new products, to uh, generate ideas about new products or, pro- or services that we could offer or new processes that we could, we could develop. So that's kind of one level. At a higher level, it's working with companies who maybe don't have a very good methodology for metrics measuring how they're, are they getting their bang for their innovation buck? How do they allot uh, money across a lot of different ideas? So we also kind of work at that level with companies. And then on the, 
the startup side, that's a that's a passion project for me. I've you know over 25 years working with startups, and that's I really like working with first time founders uh, and helping them sort of really understand what this entails, both from a personal standpoint, but also you know the process of developing a business model and scaling that and and moving on. So and I do that primarily at these days through affiliations that I have with local universities. I work with a lot of student founders with uh, different colleges here in that San Diego area where I'm, where I'm headquartered right now. That's really interesting. Thanks for that detailed response. Something I really picked up on, and I loved your expression actually, was that agnostic uh, approach to things in terms of you take the, the kind of bits that you need from the different things like Six Sigma and Lean and what have you, and you pull that together. How, how kind of easy is that in practical terms though when you're actually going to a business yeah. and you then start to cherry pick what you need to or is it is it quite an involved and difficult process maybe take the listeners through what that process might be and how you pick those different things from the tree frankly the challenge is is that corporate corporations the larger the company the more likely they want to pick a camp right it's like what what model do we want to pull off the shelf and and bring in and, but of course, it can also go to the other extreme where they just bring in a bunch of different consultants that have these different philosophies and they get frustrated because it's like, yeah, but this this methodology told us we ought to be doing it this way. This methodology told us we ought to be doing it that way. And so it is a very difficult uh, process, primarily because of the way that companies go about sourcing and buying these types of services. And so, you know, it, that is a challenge for me is to explain, hey, I don't just specialize in X, Y, or Z. I can bring you the whole alphabet. You know, I can bring you the all the different things that we can do. And it's really about kind of figuring out what you want. But it's a challenge because, uh, and you, you sometimes have to make compromises. You may get your foot in the door by doing a, a, a design sprint, you know, a design thinking design sprint. And then once you've established some traction with that company and, and they have a trust in you that you know what you're doing, you can then say, hey, you know, I'd love to integrate some elements of blue ocean strategy in this and, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, I worked for um, Target for a couple of years in innovation, and that was certainly what I tried to do is, is to understand that they had certain schools of thought that they had committed to, and I tried to you know, gain their trust in, in, okay, I can, I can do this design thinking stuff, but now let me expose you a little bit more to the lean philosophy. Now let me expose you a little bit to blue ocean strategy. And that seemed to be the, the way to, to ha- make it happen. And, and that was a really good point you made, gain their trust. And that's always one of the most difficult things when you go into a new company, because I suppose people, you know, see you come in, you've got some new strategies, new ideas, but you can't start off with those strategies, can you? You have to gain that trust. And, and and as somebody who's in that professional field, what are some of the key areas that you, you try and establish trust? You know, you have to show that you're really listening. You also have to kind of understand the landscape. You know, who are the evangelists in the company, right? Who are the people that are already behind you? Who are the people that are trying to thwart everything that you do because some people just don't like change, regardless of whether it's positive or not. They want to continue to do do things the way they are. So it's kind of understanding who those people are. And, um, you know, if it's an evangelist, then, you know, giving them the information and the insights they need to, and, and advice on how to sort of help promote their position within, within the company. If it's somebody that's trying to be... Um, 
trying to, to, you know, knock things off. It's like trying to really understand where they're coming from and, and make sure you proactively engage them, perhaps even privately, just have a meeting with them and say, Hey, love to hear some of your concerns about, uh, the, you know, this new program we're trying to implement or this new workshop we're trying to do. How can, you know, how can I help allay some of those fears? So it's really a lot of, um, sort of detective work at the beginning about the organization, who the players are, uh, where it's going to go. But, you know, frankly, at the end of the day, there's only so far, so far you can go as a, as, as a consultant. And, you know, the organization is, you know, it's really about the culture of that organization and whether they're going to be open to what you have to offer. You know, and you do talk about culture, which is so important these days because of with uh, our isolation, culture is really taking a hit, isn't it? Because it relies on so many human instincts and habits and things that we do, you know, meet around the water cooler, go and get the coffee. And we have these sort of interactions that we don't realize are so important in our day. So how that has that affected your business by being more remote now? What sort of tactics have you used about to sort of get yourself back up to that level? If you can, I don't know. Is it more difficult now or easier? I think it's more difficult. I'm doing a workshop next month and I'm so happy that we're doing it in person. I mean, I'm just going to be honest. It's just that there's, particularly when you're dealing with innovation, there's just certain interactions that are sort of spur of the moment that you can do in a group setting, in a small group setting that are a little just harder to do in Zoom, right? And 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 there's great tools and there's all these, uh, these new applications that are coming out that are trying to make it more effective. So I do think that day-to-day people going about their business, you know, doing empathy, you know, doing, doing customer interviews and things of that nature, you could probably do still pretty well on Zoom. But there are certain elements of sort of sessions where you're kind of hashing things out. What did we learn? What insights did we get from, from what we've just done that are probably better done in person? So it's a work in progress. We're all adapting to this new normal. I think the hybrid model is what we're going to see moving forward. Uh, as someone who has, has worked uh, in a home office for many years, you know, in between gigs in corporate America, you know, I, I know the value of this in terms of the, there's a lot of positives to that. But as you pointed out, there's also these negatives of sometimes feeling isolated. And so having those opportunities to bring the group together, to talk, to share, etc. are really important. Something that you did hit on earlier on, and it's a big fear for a lot of people. I've been through a lot of reorgs over the years, certainly in Europe and also in North America. And there's one common theme, and you did highlight it, is how people are very aware of the changes that are going to occur. And they they worry about that. You know, there's a fear, the human, basic human fear of change is, is a big worry for them. And also some people fear of, of losing their job, you know, in a reorg. Because yeah. my experience really of these regrouping is that um, I think people are, and I don't know how to say this, but I'll say it just straight, are fed up of change all the time. Even yeah. though change is, is a constant, we know that things are always changing in the world. But it's almost as if it, it's become accelerated in the last five or six years. Change has just gone through the roof. And it's almost been... And I'm not saying this is right, but this is what it feels like. It's change for change's sake a lot of the time. You know, I'm coming into this company, a young entrepreneurial type of guy. You know, I haven't got my own business, but I want to see the effect of some of the strategies that I've got in this company. And almost in a way, they're experimenting with people's lives and livelihoods. And some people are collateral damage. And, you know, people that have been in a company for maybe 15 or 20 years 
Not the best A or B player. Don't get me wrong there. We know they're a C player, steady Eddie. Right. But they're essential to the business in some respects. And now they lose their livelihood because of that change. And then that person who did the change moves on and creates the change somewhere else. And that's the thing that always sticks in my throat a little bit. As somebody who's, you know, a mid-50s baby boomer, I see it happen so often. And we get this constant change that's being compressed. But I don't know what your viewpoint is on that. You're right. And again, that kind of... It goes to that leadership. And that's why this leadership course I'm teaching is important to me because it's like we need to to make sure that that people in those positions recognize, you know, the the that it's not change what we call innovation theater, not change for change sake. Right. And that you have to understand the strengths and weaknesses of your of your people and that and that maybe what worked at your last company isn't necessarily going to work. And that. That's one of the problems with with uh, Silicon Valley mentality in the first place is people don't recognize how much of their success was happenstance. And they think it was all sort of this natural plan from day one. And it's, you know, it's it takes some humility to understand what was actually planned and what would just kind of happen because the, the stars were aligned properly, you know. I, I love that perspective and that humility is so important because, you know, once that goes out the window and um, also just being human, you know, thinking about, you know, you might have the innovative ideas, but put yourself in that person that's been with that for that company for 20 years and see how that would feel coming to them. And often as not, they do not do that. No. And that is really worrying because what we are then kind of the, the seeds we're plowing or putting into the furrow are going to be growing up with change being a normal thing all the time for change's sake, you know, and then people moving. So that the bedrock of a, a company tends to disintegrate a little bit or tends to be reduced. And that stable foundation that got them there over the last 20, 30, 40 years or however long that company's been around gets severely rocked. And and a lot of the time, unless somebody like yourself comes in and steadies the ship and says, okay, okay, we know what's happening here. Let's get a, a route. Let, let's get the ship on a route that we can you know, go on and then let's try and bolt things back in again. It sometimes is a rescue service that you offer. Isn't oh yeah. It, oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, and actually I've had multiple times in my career where I've stepped in, in a job where it was basically a rescue mission. Right. And, and it was exactly what you're talking about, which is, this is not the time for throwing everything off the boat. It's to patch the holes and figure out, you know, what, what's going to keep us seaworthy. And then once we do that, we can start thinking about new voyages and, and things of that nature. So, yeah. And it's nice to hear that from you, from somebody who's really worked in the, in the business, you know, the coal face, you've, you've seen the trials and tribulations of what's happening in the business. I mean, imagine some of the mom and pops businesses you might be involved with. You've probably gone in and thought, you know what, organically this works. You know, it, it's not falling, you know, lean or it's not falling six Sigma or, blue sky thinking but it kind of works because there's a realness about it and a human scale about it have, have you felt that with some businesses yes and and you're right i mean there's certain businesses where um this is not going to necessarily work but to me there's always a piece that can work right so that mom and pop business who is you know maybe business is shrinking what can we do it's like 
can we think of cost-effective ways for you to reimagine new customers or new services that you could offer? So there's always pieces of this, but yeah, this, this is not a, and again, that's the problem is like design thinking is not a one size fits all, right? It, it's the, the standard off the shelf design thinking program that Google uses works great for companies like Google, doesn't necessarily work great for mom and pop or even Target because we, we modified it uh, even for that. But um, what I find more with mom and pops is the kind of the flip side, which is we've got to get over the nostalgia, um, you know, which is, man, the, you know, the, the halcyon days when, when things were so great and, you know, the, it was so, it was so terrific. And it's like, if you want to survive, you've got to change or you then think about, okay, how do I sell and preserve and at least move on some of this wealth to my, to my family. So I've kind of encountered that more, um, is kind of, a an, un, sort of this woe is me, uh, why did this happen to me? I'm, you know, I've been doing things that, you know, I've been doing things the right way. And it's like, it's unfortunate. There are, there are forces against small business in the world. You know, the, the, you know, la- these larger companies, government, it's set, you know, there's all, there's no argument, but it's like, but what are you going to do about it? Right. You can get the pitchfork out or you can, you know, adapt, adapt accordingly. So, um, but but I, I I definitely get it, and you know you, you hear the local places that people go to. It's not just because they're local; it's because there's the the customers have some sort of connection, or there's something they can get there they can't get somewhere else, right? So it's not just about hey, I'm a local small business; you ought to come and see my business. You got to have more. It's it's about that experience, isn't it? Ultimately, um, how do you take some of the the biggest roadblocks or the people that put the biggest roadblocks in front of you how do you take them on that journey what's the process to allay their fears and you may not convert them i imagine but how do you get them kind of on side what's some of the techniques that you've used i think it's always uh, a, a very careful orchestration in making sure that everyone has a voice uh, so when we're doing, you know, I, I purposely if i see someone who's not really engaged i will encourage them to to participate and, and uh, contribute. But there's also that point where they may start to contribute in a negative way. It just becomes sort of a, a, a carpet bombing of negative emotion and concerns and fears. And, and so it's sort of managing that level of participation and pulling in someone else to say, well, how about, and, and not making it about you versus the individual, right? It's like, it's like, uh, if someone raises a concern, I'll say, does anyone else have that concern? And then we'll have, a, you know, we'll have a discussion about that. And how, how might we address that? How might this new program, how about this, this new approach change those concerns? So it's just hashing that out, having that conversation, giving them simple exercises that demonstrate the value of what we're trying to do. For example, the, you know, one of the, one of the principal tenants that we try to a blue ocean strategy is to think about customers who we don't serve, right? The, the customers who currently are not be, are being underserved or not served. Why would we kind of fight for market share from, for the same customers who are being relatively well served by all the other competitors in the space when we know that there are customers out there who are not. And so that might be hard for people to say, well, 
but we we know these customers really well and you know there's so there's that fear of the unfamiliar but it's like let's think about the opportunity to serve these folks what would that take would it really take a radical shift in what we do or would it just take maybe making some some minor structural changes to address that you know i use this term a lot small wins right what are the small wins that you can accumulate Someone, you know, they're just people who are going to be a lost cause, right? They're they're set in their ways, and and you do the best you can. You just hope they're not a barrier, a, a total barrier. But if you can if you can demonstrate in tangible, small ways some of the benefits of what you're proposing, then you're chipping away at the at the fear and the concerns that that people have. And I suppose the expression comes to mind, Rome wasn't built in a day, is it? You know, <laughs> an elephant in small pieces, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, one of the things, you, again, you did say earlier, and it was quite interesting, is about data and about sort of referencing where you are, you know, relative to, you know, you start here and you're going to end up here. And so that type of feedback is extremely important, not just for the executives of the company, but I suppose for the, you know, the people that are working in the business as well. There are certain companies that are very open about, you know, here's what our here's what our numbers look like, here's what our targets look like, uh, and they share that across the company. And and what that does, that level of transparency, just everybody has ownership, right? We if we're all responsible for these numbers, we should all know about these numbers if they all impact these metrics, impact our day to day, whether we're going to have a job or whether we're going to get a bonus at the end of the year. We all ought to be aware of these metrics and how. It contributes to that. And that and that allays some of the fear, right? It's like we know what we're being measured on and we're doing this because we hope it'll raise certain metrics. Okay. And yeah, I was just going to ask, what's your kind of, um, I suppose, three-step plan of getting there and showing them how these metrics work and, and how meaningful they can be to an organization so they can get some tangible sort of things that are, that are there that they can hold on to say, okay, we are improving. Well, one is to understand what they're measuring now and what's working, what's not, right? So that that's a, that's a simple. Uh, two is the means by which those those numbers are are distributed, right? Are they just shared within the C-suite or are people that is it widespread within the company? And then three, what's the process for determining what those key metrics are going to be? Um, is that in, again? Is that just C-suite input or is that input from across the, the company and understanding that metrics are not just financial metrics, but it might be a measure of employee well-being, you know, employees feeling that are engaged on the job, um, that they're, they're making a contribution. That was part of the metrics that we used to measure whether or not we were being successful. And I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to challenge you on something there, right? Because it's all very well talking about lean, blue sky thinking, you know, sort of metrics, KPIs, all the things that are the jargon that goes within, you know, inverted commas, improving a company. But, you know, some companies don't need that, do they? Some companies need to have the organic side massaged and the employees brought up to a certain level where the toxic environment can evaporate in many cases and people then start to relax a little bit and engage in much more natural ways with each other so that the team takes the process and, and runs with it and lean and all the other types of, you know, analytic things don't necessarily come in at the early stage, do they? No, you're, you're absolutely right. And anyone who comes in with a particular technique is not going to be successful if the overall sense is that this is being forced down our throats, right? 
you're just there's 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 only so many tricks in the, in your bag to overcome that. If you don't feel like there's going to be uh, an organic way for this to sustain itself, you're going to be in trouble uh, as an organization and certainly as a consultant trying to to work with this organization. And that's part of what you kind of assess going in. It all starts with leadership. I mean, if is your leadership truly committed to creating the kind of culture, the kind of habitat that will foster that kind of engagement? Um, Tina Selig out of Stanford University wrote a book a few years ago called Ingenious, and she calls it, she talks about the innovation engine and that there's three elements of the engine that are sort of controlled by the individual, their knowledge, what they know and what they're, what they want to learn, you know, the thirst for knowledge, the way that they look at things uh, and their drive, you know, their, their intellectual curiosity, if you will. But for that to be fostered, the organization has to provide the right resources, has to provide the habitat, uh, you know, the and habitat, not just sort of the physical sort of cool, cool office space thing, but just kind of the, the structure, if you will, and the, and the sense that, that people feel like they're, they're, everyone's contributing, everyone has a say, and then the culture. And the culture to me really is a function of the right habitat and resources and reinforcement and picking the right people, right? Sometimes the best way to change a culture is to change the people. And that's just the, that's just the reality. Um, is that is that you know the way we were you may not take the same people as the way we want to be right then and you know the uh, search versus execution there's there are people who are really good at executing on a day-to-day basis being very efficiency oriented they're not very good thinking creatively engaging in search dealing with ambiguity and if that's kind of where your company or, or a particular group in your company's headed you need to move those execution people to execution positions and bring in search people who are more comfortable in that search realm. Okay. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Okay. So what's been the one that you went in and thought, okay, I can definitely help this company. We're going to take them on this journey lead them by the hand. And then it all went to complete pot. In other words, it just fell apart. Was there an example of that that happened and how did you retrieve it? Um, I, I won't, I can't name names. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. No, but just examples. That would be great. Sure. Um, I would say, um, the, the, the situations where I have semi successfully, but not entirely is just what we described is I underestimated that I didn't have the buy-in of leadership. And when you don't have the buy-in of leadership, you're just spinning your wheels. And so you leave Having felt that, um, you know, I, I, I sort of I sort of put people in a position where they're going to be even more frustrated because I showed them what it could be. And yet leadership didn't I didn't get complete leadership buy in. And so they're going to continue on the same track. The recovery, if you will, is just uh, sort of laying out. You know, I, I mean, I just honestly laid out, hey, and unless these things change, you're, you're going to you're going to remain frustrated. There, there are just certain times where where the recovery is not not going to be there uh, at the leadership level. I, I would just I would say if you have leadership buy in, it's much easier to change the minds of the day-to-day folks because you have that leadership support and it's a positive leadership support, then vice versa. When you don't have top leadership support, no matter how willing everyone else is, 
that's going to be a, a roadblock. It, it just becomes a great, okay, I had a great, exp- I had fun this week, but it's not going to materially change how I do business from day to day. And to be fair, let's flip the coin over. What was your biggest success, do you think? Some of the work I did at Target was very rewarding because um, because I did have, one, I had, I had leadership commitment um, and someone who said, we, we have to do this, these workshops. We have to think differently about how we approach innovation. It was for a particular division within Target. Um, there was some reluctance amongst the masses, if you will. Um, and part of that was because, you know, they had done things a certain way. I, to me, the, this division was kind of like the Toyota of before hybrids, the Toyota of approach, which is to be a fast follower, but cheaper. And it was different to be thinking about what if we just scrapped all that and thought differently about how we approach new product development in this particular uh, division. And so there was a lot of reluctance, a lot of skepticism. But by the end, it was really rewarding to see people had changed the jargon. People had changed the mindset of, of how they did things. You know, not 100%. But the biggest thing was a change in mindset, right? Because tools are, can change, but it's like thinking differently and saying, instead of how can we make a better, similar product, how can we solve this problem differently? And that's so different, right? How do we approach this with something that might be a completely different product or service than what's currently out there? That just opens up, right, the world of opportunity. So I would say that was one of my, that my most rewarding successes and this, this, this was fairly high stakes in terms of the number of people that went through this program. And, and there was a lot of skepticism and then finding that people really kind of bought into it. And the evidence was they'd come and tell us, you know, I, I wasn't too sure when we started this, but, you know, you guys were on the right track. So I like that one about the change of mindset, because you, you have to have a very open mind, don't you, in many respects. You have to say, clear away the preconceived ideas, try and open your mind and consider things you wouldn't consider before because you never know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of a precursor to anything we do. Anything I do is like the first comments are exactly along those lines. We're going to go into some territory that's going to it's going to feel unfamiliar to you. We're going to go into some territory that's maybe going to feel a little anxious to you, but you got to embrace this process, trust the process, be open-minded as much as possible as we go through it. And I promise you that you'll get some nuggets out of this, you know, and it's, but it really is kind of going in open-minded, so important. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Helda Sebastio, innovation consultant and startup advisor. Next, I wanted to ask Helder about where his family ended up in North America and what influence mum and dad had on his job career. I always tell people, uh, I do some, I actually do some career development counseling now as well, consulting. And um, I always tell people, if you want your kids to have a very linear and predictable career path, don't have them talk to me because that was, that's not, I, I am not the, I am not the, the poster boy for that. Um, so I, I, I grew up in Massachusetts. Uh, again, uh, my parents immigrated from Portugal, very much blue collar. Um, dad was a maintenance electrician. My mother had a variety of different uh, sort of factory jobs. 
as we were growing up. But one of the things they always emphasized, neither one of them had a lot of formal education, but one of the things they always emphasized was education in in our household. So I ended up being a pretty good student, decided kind of my dad's being an electrician kind of influenced me. I decided electrical engineering. uh, And that was to me a, a place that offered opportunity a, a good job and a, and, a, and a decent salary. And I went to Northeastern University, which is in Boston, Massachusetts. And one of the things that appealed to me about that program was they had a co-op program. I had to go an additional year, but after five years of college, I had a four-year degree and two years of work experience. And that's kind of been an, a consistent theme in my, in my life is always a, uh, linking the practical with the theoretical, if you will. And then I went to work for General Electric. So that was my first taste of big time Fortune 500 company. I got put into their um, technical marketing program. And that's a kind of what I call the pre-MBA. It was taking engineering types, right? Nerdy engineering types and teaching them about, hey, there's this thing called customers and there's this thing called needs, <laughs> you know, and, and we've got to fill these needs, right? You know, with solutions, <laughs> Um, and that, so that, that must be an impossible task sometimes. Come on. I mean, yeah. That must it, be yeah. The toughest I mean, gig, eh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it opened up a path for me. Uh, and then I took on another position with a different company and said, you know, I'm going to go for my MBA because I'm, I'm more interested now in sort of consulting, you know, the, the marketing and business side of engineering. And so I went for my MBA. And when I went for my MBA, someone in the program said, oh, I see you, you know, you're, you have an engineering degree, electrical engineering, you work for GE, we need someone to teach our undergraduate operations management course, would you do that? And I said, I will, but I don't want to do it because, you know, I, I know why you're asking me to do it because I'm an engineer, but I want to do it with a marketing emphasis, right? So I sort of changed the curriculum a little bit and, and added, you know, why is understanding queuing theory important? Well, it relates to customer service and, and giving people the impression that you're trying to serve them as, as quickly as possible. And that then took me on a, on a path I hadn't even expected, which is to be an educator. And so I did that for a while, did consulting and did marketing consulting and, and teaching uh, for quite a while. You know, family was moving to, to in different places on the West Coast. And I'll speed us up to then deciding, hey, I've, I've been doing this teaching on the side and consulting. What about academia as a career? And so in my 40s, I decided to go back for my PhD and I went to the University of Oregon. It was a great experience and I was in academia for about 10 years and it's focused on entrepreneurship and innovation. And I guess one of the one of the steps I shouldn't have skipped here was in one of my teaching stops, there was a small business development center attached to a college I was teaching at. And they asked me if I would be interested in doing mentoring. And I was like, sure. And so then I got really exposed to the world of small business and entrepreneurship. And that led to other opportunities. And so before I went for my PhD, I had worked for a small business development center as a, as a director uh, for about a year. So that's where the entrepreneurship background came in. And then the PhD was really kind of the melding of the of the entrepreneurship practical small business world with the theoretical concepts of things like design thinking and and blue ocean strategy and effectuation and which is entrepreneurial thinking and acting. Left academia, I had some medical issues. I got out of academia, but not entirely. I full time academia, 
uh, moved back to Northern California. Then Target came along and someone from Target, you know, I won't say trolling me on LinkedIn, but following me on LinkedIn and eventually reached out and said, hey, you know, you've got a lot of experience with startups and this lean stuff. And would you consider doing that in a large company? And that was a big culture shock. And I said, well, you know, this would be a good experience, but having to move to the Midwest. Growing up in Massachusetts, I knew what winter was like, but I really don't know what winter was like until I moved to Minnesota. But that was a great experience. It was it was uh, learning how to adapt the entrepreneurial mindset in a corporate setting. As previously noted, some successes, some not so not so great uh, great experiences. But um, I was I was a professor at the University of San Diego as part of my time in academia. Came back and I'm now back here doing the consulting. I, I, what I, the way I would describe it is I've come to several forks in the road over my life and I, I took one direction and then that opened up other forks to, to choose from. And, and that's kind of how, how it's gone. It was not, it was not preordained. I thought I'd be an engineer my whole life when I graduated from Northeastern. I liked what you said about the commercial side of um, entrepreneurship, you know, through Target. That was, they were quite forward thinking, weren't they, to be able to reach out to you and start that uh, process rolling was it a new department or just a new way of thinking or did a new ceo come in and start that ball rolling what happened there there were initiatives innovation initiatives at several different elements and levels within the company and so mine was part of a small team that that was founded by the individual who recruited me that worked within product design and development there was an incubator uh, at target there were other groups that were doing innovation and so uh, I think one of the challenges for them, which I think has changed now since I left, was, you know, how do we corral all of these different initiatives and, and give them some sense of, of symmetry and or you know, synergy between them? That's how I started with with Target. Definitely, there was a, you know, the, the CEO uh, of the company had a, has a particular vision and Target has benefited. One of the companies that benefited from the pandemic uh, and had already been making a strong, uh, a lot ha- have a lot larger chunk of its business from e-commerce and using their stores as distribution centers and things of that nature. So there were already initiatives in play. Our role on the team I was on was to really help the product design and development teams, the people that were creating target brands, help them think differently about maybe how they approach that process. So I'd, I'd like to go back to the innovation side because I know that's very, very close to your heart. So innovation is a, is a blanket word in many ways, isn't it? But what are we talking about? We're talking about startups. We're talking about maybe tech companies. We're talking about people who are established but want to do a new product, for instance. Is that fair? Is that what innovation covers or is, is it a much wider scale? I think it's much wider. Um I, you know, I, I'm, I'm actually for this workshop I'm doing next month, I, I define creativity, innovation and entrepreneurship and how they're interrelated. And to me, creativity is sparks, right? They, they ignite something that ignites a, a, a thought. Innovation is converting that that inspiration into an opportunity and entrepreneurship is then converting that opportunity into a viable business model. So that's kind of how they're they're interrelated. And there are some people who are great at creativity, you know, scientists, for example, who who are developing these discoveries, right? The big science is, is, is what the term we use in, in the I-Corp program that I've, I've been a part of. But it's like, where does that big science go? 
that's innovation, right? It's, is, okay, how do we apply that to something? And then entrepreneurship and innovation are tied together in that entrepreneurship is about, okay, how do we commercialize that innovation? So I, I get insane when people say innovation is only about tech, right? Or that's small business. That's not really entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is about recognizing an opportunity to create unique value. You know, when food trucks first came out, that would, to me was a unique, a unique opportunity to create value, which, by the way, came as a result of overcoming a constraint that some people had cooking skills but couldn't afford the capital outlay to create a restaurant, right? So they created a food truck. So there's all kinds of non-iPhone examples of innovation, right? Because we, we always think, oh, kind of the big science. Not that that's not important. And that grabs the headlines, understandably, because of the nature of venture capital. You hinted actually about a course that you're probably be running, I think it was next month. Um, so I'd love for the listeners to understand a little bit more about your business now, what you can offer in terms of courses, and also what you can offer in terms of actual coaching and be there by their side. There's individual coaching with startup founders on different aspects of their venture. I, my, my focus tends to be on early stage customer discovery process, uh, getting to the point of really identifying a viable and scalable business model, and then how to best package and present that if you're trying to raise investment to scale. From the innovation standpoint, it would be innovation coaching on uh, working with CEO, kind of looking at their uh, overall innovation management systems and making recommendations about uh, you know, how to how to better prioritize, evaluate, reward, maybe changing metrics, et cetera. Then there's group training, which is kind of from the innovation standpoint, the train the trainer, uh, where you are helping train people within the organization to help spread the gospel of different techniques and approaches, you know, customer focused design, things of that nature. Uh, and then there can be uh, just classes and workshops that are teasers basically about different topics to get people more interested to think about what they're doing. The The course I'm doing next, co-teaching next month is with a local university and it's on leadership, entrepreneurial leadership, which is one part about how to think entrepreneurially, but then also how to analyze your company for its readiness to act entrepreneurially. And what do you need to do differently to change that readiness? So the you know, we'll be talking about the the innovation engine, which I referred to earlier as part of that, having people assess their own company's current engine and what needs to be tweaked, what needs to be changed, what needs to be overhauled. I can push that engine metaphor even further to get to the point where you can successfully become a more entrepreneurial organization. I want to leave the listeners with something, and you did mention it there, how to think entrepreneurial. So, Give us a couple of tips how you could start that process off before we engage maybe somebody like yourself as a consultant or go on a course. How do you do that? I think one is just kind of read a lot of different things about entrepreneurship. There's a great book, you know, for, for someone who doesn't know what they want to do in entrepreneurship but wants to think entrepreneurially, it's a book called Just Start. So really basic, easy title. And it's about how you can create an entrepreneurial venture for yourself based on what you know, who you know, and, you know, sort of what your interests are. 
right? As opposed to when I worked for small business development centers, one of the things that always drove me insane was someone would come in and say, what's a great business to get into? You know, as if it was just about, you know, it was gold mining. It was just like finding that load, right? Finding the ore. You know, cybersecurity is a great business to get into, but if you don't have any interest in that, you don't have a degree in that, you know, you don't have a PhD in it, you're not a good candidate to be launching that kind of venture. So the best way to think, start thinking entrepreneurial is think about, hey, what opportunities are out there? What problems or pains are out there? And they may be pains I have as a budding entrepreneur that I would like to solve. And then I got to go figure out, and that's where customer discovery comes in. Then I got to go figure out if there's other people who also feel that this is a big pain and a problem, then I might be onto something, right? So starting with who you are, what you're interested in is a way to start. And also thinking in terms of problems to solve as opposed to solutions you'd love to do, right? I'd love to own. I want to start. That's the wrong way to start. It's thinking about what do I want to solve? What's bugging me that I think needs to change? Love that advice. That was absolutely brilliant advice. And I'm going to ask you just this one other question off the back of that. Why are people frightened to start? Uh, there's a lot of unknowns, uh, you know, and, and it's risky, right? I mean, um, and although, you know, to, to me, there's this, there's this mythology about entrepreneurs are, they're, they're risk ravenous, right? They, they, they do it because they love the risk. What it is, is they're not afraid of the risk, right? Uh, and they're able to embrace it, uh, adapt to it, work around it, reduce it through knowledge and, and incremental, you know, these small wins. And that's probably the biggest hurdle is people, people afraid of that downside, the fit, they're not guaranteed a particular upside. Whereas entrepreneurs focus on the upside, right? They can, they think they can figure out the downside or, or mitigate the downside and they focus on the upside. People who are least likely to engage in entrepreneurship are people that get focused on the downside. They can't deal with that, that potential downside. And, and you know, to be fair to everybody here listening, all of us go through that process of having the downside. We get worried financially. We get worried how we're going to pay the bills, the mortgage. And that's a natural part of our human reaction to things. And David, that, and that's why this, this kind of the, what this Just Start book talks about, right? This means-driven kind of entrepreneurship, you, you, this small incremental, right? You don't quit your job. You do some, you do some gigs, right, in the particular space. Back to the food example. Maybe even before you buy a food truck, you go to a, you go to a local county you know, or, or a city, city market, farmer's market, and you sell your product and get feedback and figure out if people really would want that on a, on a regular basis. So you're right. Uh, I think, I think it's, it's more about the concern that, hey, it's a big investment. I, you know, I'm going to quit my job. How can you continue doing what you're doing while you figure out what it is you want to do? That's kind of the key is to transition yourself into that and not make it a sort of an all or nothing kind of choice. It's been amazing. I love the advice you've given us today. It's so, so valuable. So now the most important thing, if somebody wants to either come in the course next month, I'm not sure if it's open to the public generally, but to maybe do, engage with you, what's the easiest way of getting a hold of you? Easiest way to get a hold, and the, the course is not, is not open. It's for a particular program. Uh, but the easiest way to get a hold of me is to, to check out my LinkedIn page, H.J. Sebastio is the uh, is the the name there. So or look up Helder Sebastio. There's only a couple, and you'll you'll recognize me. So um, that would be the best way to get in touch with me. That's kind of my 
my website, it, you know, I just use that as my, my central point. Oh, that's fantastic. And do you have a Facebook page or you're on Twitter or anything else? I'm on Twitter as well, uh, same handle. And uh, I'm off Facebook for for reasons of, of uh, you know, just kind of what's been going on, right? I mean, and I, I, <laughs> don't get us started. I don't get me started, exactly. exactly so <laughs> I think a, I think of a lot of us run businesses are actually, I, I know this is really a subject for another podcast, but we are disappointed in that angle. Some parts of social media have really changed over the last couple of years and it's, um, it's opened some big sores, I think, you know, and uh, definitely a debate for another time, isn't it? Yeah, it is a debate for another time. And yeah, I, I mean, to me, LinkedIn for was a place where I conducted business and Facebook was where I conducted social. LinkedIn is still to me a very a place where for the most part, people are engaged in very um, healthy networking with one another, getting and, and information sharing that that help, you know, helpful business tips and things of that nature. So that's kind of my num- my go-to place for, in terms of my business. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question before you go because uh, I, I love th- throwing this question out there. If um, if you're 18 again, what would you tell yourself? What would I tell my younger self? Um, don't sweat it as much. Uh, don't think you have it all figured out, which I very much did, and I and I felt at that point in my life, given where I was socioeconomically, I couldn't make a lot of mistakes and go with the flow. I mean, um, life is going to present a lot of different, again, forks for you. And it's not about which one you choose. It's what you do with what you choose is kind of the, you know, that would be the the advice I would give myself, my 18 year old self. So I love that statement. It's what you do with what you choose. Wow. That's such a powerful statement. Well, Helda, thank you so much for coming on another track today. I really appreciated your advice, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. And I wish you the best of luck with your consulting. I think, uh, you know, you're going to be busy, <laughs> definitely very busy. Thank you, David. I appreciate you having me on, and it's been great chatting with you, and I and, uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Helda Sebastio, innovation consultant and startup advisor helping to banish innovation theatre from your company. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track on your podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America. Thank you.